Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This week, the oldest travel agency in the world went under, leaving hundreds of thousands of its customers stranded. You might think that's simply the continuing impact of the internet on bricks and mortar travel agencies, but it's not as simple as that. And there's a new movie out in China about infrastructure. Common Destiny is about China's Belt and Road Initiative. And as propaganda goes, it's pretty subtle. But reviews reveal lukewarm attitudes both about the film and about Belt and Road itself. First up, though. President Donald Trump is engulfed in another political scandal involving allegations that his critics are calling the most troubling yet. It all revolves around a phone call, one that Mr. Trump says was of no significance. I will tell you it's a great call. It's a very honorable call. It's a nice call. In July, Donald Trump called Vladimir Zelensky, the newly elected president of Ukraine, to congratulate him on his victory. John Prudeau is our United States editor. And he also said something in that call that gave rise to a complaint, a sort of red flag from a whistleblower within America's intelligence services. Now, there's a lot of dispute about what exactly was said on that call. What we do know is, depending on the reporting you read, either shortly before the call or shortly afterwards, the White House took the unusual step of freezing $250 million in military aid to Ukraine. And a lot of the reporting has suggested that there was a quid pro quo implied where the White House would release that military aid, which did indeed happen later, if Ukraine's government agreed to investigate the business dealings of Hunter Biden, the son of the Democratic frontrunner. Now, uh, I guess we're both fairly familiar with uh, Fervent media response to Trump-related scandals. Is, is this one, does this one just go in the big bucket of those? Well, you're right, Jason. Each time there's a new Trump scandal, I try and think, well, if I didn't know this were President Trump, if it were another president, how would I feel about it? And also, where does this rank on the kind of Trumpometer with the sort of mini scandal over lying about the size of the inauguration crowd on one end and the maxi scandal about alleged obstruction of justice on the other. And I think this is a this is a big one. It may be the worst yet. And I, I say that because if what appears to have happened, which is that the administration seems to have made military aid to Ukraine in some sense conditional on digging up dirt on an election rival for President Trump in 2020, then that would involve bending American foreign policy out of shape to pursue a, na- a sort of narrow political 
vendetta. And I say it would involve bending American foreign policy out of shape because the natural thing to do here would have been to give Ukraine the military aid, which had been appropriated by Congress. Ukraine, as you know, is a fragile country trying to put itself back together after an invasion from Russia. America has a national interest in Ukraine being as peaceful and stable as it can be. And you know, if that's true, I think that's very bad. I think that would really be a betrayal of America's national interest. And so that makes it particularly bad, I think. Well, some members of Congress are, are, are again or, or still or more loudly talking about impeachment. Do you think this sort of changes the, the, the nature of the push for that? I think it may change the balance for some congressmen. There are some who, right from the beginning, have been on for impeaching Donald Trump. They've been rather ignored by the House leadership. But there are some now who have up until this point been reluctant to impeach because they think it's not in the Democratic Party's political interest, who are now making noises suggesting that they're thinking about changing their position. So those are the ones to watch. And there'll be hearings in Congress later in the week you know, if we get this full whistleblowers report, then those are the Congress members who you want to watch. I feel like we've been here before on, on this distinction between those who are just making kind of a, a political calculation as to whether impeachment is the right thing and those making a, a pure moral constitutional argument about it. What does it tell you about the, the state of play in, in, in Washington in general that this is the calculation people are making? Well, that is the big division within the Democratic Party at the moment, and that's the argument that's been going on for some time, as you say, and it's been intensified by this um, Donald Trump, Ukraine, Zelensky story. I think, in fact, the political and, and the constitutional are sort of the same in the sense that we talked about this before, Jason. In theory, Congress can impeach the president for more or less anything. In practice, the politics of it have to line up in the sense that um, the opposition party has to get the public behind it. Um, it's, I think, would backfire if an impeachment you know, were seen as unpersuasive and just a means to get rid of a president who the opposition party doesn't like. So you need public support. And then the other thing is you need to be pretty sure that if you impeach the president, then the Senate will follow and convict. Otherwise, a failed impeachment is, you know, in which the president is exonerated, most people think is likely to strengthen the president and increase the chances of him being re-elected in 2020, in which case it's not clear that you've upheld, you know, a constitutional principle. So the two are the two are more mixed together, the the principled argument and the political argument, than than you might like. Another political calculation that has arisen here is how this affects Joe Biden via his son who's implicated. And this, this all has the smell of the story of Hillary Clinton's emails where there was constantly this just mere whiff of alleged corruption that basically dominated much of the campaign. Is that what's going to happen with this set of facts, allegations, thoughts? There is a whiff of that, Jason. And clearly it's part of President Trump's plan to get people talking about this and to try and discredit Joe Biden. That said, there is a real something here. I may not have been illegal, but I think it's a bit unethical that the sitting vice president of the US's son was on the board of a gas company in Ukraine that depended for its business on getting licenses from the government of Ukraine. All the while, Joe Biden was responsible for the White House's policy towards Ukraine. So there's not necessarily anything illegal about that, but I think it's a bit unethical. And Morally, there's no relationship between what Hunter Biden did or didn't do in Ukraine and whether President Trump abused his office. That said, politically, the two are linked because 
the Hunter Biden story gives Republicans something real to talk about when the subject of Donald Trump and undue influence on Ukraine's president is brought up. So it matters. So you say, to your mind, this looks at least like what would be the biggest scandal of the Trump presidency, and yet we run the numbers and it looks like he would escape this in any case. I mean, is he utterly untouchable? Is he untouchable? Well, I think if the House were to impeach the president, then he would probably be found innocent in the Senate. I don't think there are Republicans at the moment willing to change their minds about that. So that does mean, for the time being, he's unimpeachable. Whether that remains the case for the rest of his term, we'll have to see. But at the moment, that's where we are. John, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise, where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist. Remember, Thomas Cook Shops offer all the best planned holiday packages from your favorite companies like Cosmos, Thomson, Enterprise, and many more. The British travel agency Thomas Cook began life in 1841, offering pricey day trips between the towns of Leicester and Loughborough. It went on to become an enormous package holiday firm, the world's oldest. Now its story has come to a disgraceful end. The company has gone bust leaving hundreds of thousands of its customers in the lurch. Britain's government is arranging repatriation for them and talking of a probe into the firm's management. Last night, Prime Minister Boris Johnson questioned why executives were paid so much amid the company's financial turmoil. In the internet era, high street travel agents have long seemed like an anachronism, but that's not to say that package holidays are. Thomas Cook's recent financial history has been pretty dire. It's struggled for the best part of a decade. Richard Cockett is a senior editor at The Economist. We thought it would survive. There was a rescue deal from its banks in place just last month. But then, just towards the end of last week, some of the banks involved in this asked for more money. None of its backers would give it the money, give them a guarantee they'd get the money, so they basically pulled the plug on it, and it collapsed yesterday. There were some calls for a government bailout of the company, but they fell on deaf ears, and in truth, I don't think that was ever going to happen. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of amazing that, that Thomas Cook was still around. The, the idea of package holidays seems to have been in decline for, for years in, in much of the internet era, right? Yes. Just to give it a bit of history, I mean, Thomas Cook, being the oldest travel company around, has gone through many iterations. So it started more of a sort of bestoke, rather posh travel company, Mark Twain, Winston Churchill, lots of famous names used it. And then in the 60s and 70s, it got into the holiday package industry, which was the boom industry of of its 
time. The problem is, is that it got first in to that industry, didn't follow all the changes in the industry. Most importantly, it fell way behind on the internet and how the internet was changing the industry. It had far too many bricks and mortars branches, whereas all its best competitors in the package holiday market had long ago gone online. It had a lot of overheads and it made some very unwise business decisions in terms of mergers and acquisitions as well. And so it's sort of a talisman. It is a, it, it represents what the whole of the industry is doing? No, I don't think so. In fact, if anything, the package holiday industry is enjoying a bit of a resurgence. I mean, it became deeply unfashionable several years ago. But in fact, the numbers of people taking package holidays in Britain is in fact rising. They're called inclusive tours now. So it's not so much a matter of Thomas Cook being in the wrong market. It's just that Thomas Cook couldn't take advantage of a market that is in fact uh, enjoying a bit of a boom. Well, why not? They were incumbent in the market. They were huge. They had good name recognition. Yes, and they could achieve economies of scale, which smaller competitors couldn't. However, they had huge overheads. They had 550 high street branches in Britain, thousands of staff. Its online competitors had none of those overheads. They operated entirely through the internet. Thomas Cook had made some very bad decisions on mergers and acquisitions. It had built up a mountain of debt. And, you know, it was unlucky. It took a large bet on certain holiday destinations like Tunisia, which then collapsed because of terrorism a few years ago, sort of wiping out its market there. So what's the situation with Thomas Cook and, and its customers now? At the moment, Thomas Cook had about 600,000 customers taking its packages when it collapsed. 150,000 of those are British. They are almost all covered by insurance from the travel industry called Atoll. And they are currently being repatriated in the biggest operation of its kind of civilians since the Second World War. There are also about 300,000 German customers. The German government, I think, is, is arranging for most of their repatriation as well. This will attract some criticism. The money that it will cost to do all this, some critics say, could have been put towards saving the company in the first place. But it's the long-term business model. That is the problem, not the here and now. So is the broader lesson here not that package holidays are for the chop, but the sort of the high street branch, the one you walk into and book your holiday? Is that the part that is history? That is the part that is history, I think, yeah. And they looked monumentally out of date when you went into one. It was like a library. It was a complete hush. There's nobody ever in there and a few kind of nervous staff sort of flicking through these old colour brochures. It was terribly 1960s in 2019. So it's sad, but there you are. It didn't keep up with the market and that's what happens. There's no room for complacency. Other people are getting to this market, but they are going to be probably undercut by low-cost airlines. They've spotted a gap in the market because they are being squeezed on their margins just for flying. So they're beginning to advertise accommodation, cars, etc., everything you'd need for a package holiday on their websites. So, you know, this is becoming a very, very competitive market. So some of the big operators that are expected to benefit from Cook's demise, namely TUI, German-owned operator, they have no reason for complacency. They're in a very tough market. So I will be booking my package holidays. It's just I'll be doing so through an airline and apparently I'll be calling it an inclusive tour. You will, and then you won't be stuck at Menorca Airport as our political editor now is trying to get back on his Thomas Cook plane. Richard, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's not an obvious subject for a feature film. 
But China's Belt and Road Initiative, a global infrastructure scheme, is the source material for a new movie called Common Destiny. In the movie, we learn that a new railway built by China in Kenya has alleviated the transportation challenges of rural residents. James Yan is a China correspondent for The Economist. We also discover, for example, that Chinese internet companies in Middle Eastern countries like Jordan are solving youth unemployment by hiring young people that local companies have turned down. So, so how much subtlety is there here? How obviously political is this film? Yes, so what's interesting is that although the movie received strong backing from the government, it's not entirely obvious that the movie is a propaganda film. Political slogans are not used in the film. The Chinese term for the Belt and Road Initiative, Yilu, is rarely mentioned. Uh, in fact, I don't recall it even being used once. The only aspect of the film that is overtly political is the title, Common Destiny, which refers to President Xi Jinping's famous foreign policy doctrine, a community of common destiny for mankind. And what do audiences make of it? Uh, well, the film has earned just one million Chinese yuan at the box office so far. So that's around uh, 140,000 US dollars. That is a very disappointing result, especially given that one of the government firms behind Common Destiny also invested in China's highest grossing film of all time called Wolf Warrior 2. Uh, that film grossed 5.7 billion yuan. So for the people who have seen the movie, the reviews are decidedly mixed. Those who leave a bad review, I think they take issue not so much with the film itself, but rather with the Belt and Road Initiative, which many in China consider a waste of money as an ill-advised giveaway to poor developing countries. Is, is, that, is that a fair assessment, that, it, that the, the initiative amounts to handouts? Very little of the BRI involves giveaways. Much of it involves loans with rather high interest rates. So how widespread is this view then that the, the, the BRI is, is, is a waste of money? So it's very hard to accurately gauge what Chinese people think of the Belt and Road Initiative. And that's because reliable public opinion surveys uh, are hard to come by. But I did speak to one Chinese academic who studied this matter. And he studied online comments from social media that refer to the BRI. And his conclusion was that only around a third of these online comments expressed an enthusiastic view about the BRI. The other two thirds were either neutral or negative. If these are negative views about an absolutely enormous government initiative, you'd imagine that Chinese censors would sort of scrub this stuff from the internet. Yes, so the censors are indeed trying to scrub words or phrases that mock the BRI. So in recent years, detractors of the Belt and Road Initiative have taken to calling the project Da Sa Bi, which means a big spill of money. That is a play on Da Sha Bi, which is a very vulgar term that I don't know if I can repeat on your show in English. No, no, no need. Don't worry. Um, I guess I wonder, though, if the goal here is for the Chinese propaganda machine to sort of uh, bring people on side, to convince them that the, the money is well spent, do you think that films like this can do that? Well, I think it's definitely a big challenge. Part of the reason is the subject matter itself. You know, the Belt and Road Initiative 
is a rather complex economic and political instrument of statecraft that does not easily lend itself to excitement. So I don't think movies like Common Destiny will do much to change public opinion. Maybe I should put it a little more directly. I mean, is it a good film? Did you like it? I think the movie itself was all right. I personally would give it, I think, uh, perhaps a 60% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I enjoyed the music. I enjoyed the cinematography. But in terms of the messaging, I think that didn't really strike a chord. Thanks very much for joining us, James. Pleasure. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 for £12. See you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.